Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning as we continue our series, The Worshiping Church. And we're focusing on the church in Acts 2, the the early church, but also we're focusing on whom God is calling us as his church to become. And so we're going to jump right in to the passage that we've been reading together, Acts 2, starting at verse 42. Let's read together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we're going to be focusing today, uh, starting at 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And today we're going to be talking about the importance of being together, of walking together, of worshiping together as believers. But I'd love to start and show you a quick picture. This week, I just got back from a little vacation to my homeland and in, at the Jersey Shore. And every year, the Harris clan descends in Ocean City, New Jersey to spend a little time together. And during this time, we reflect and we encourage each other. But the most amazing part of this week is to see my kids get to spend a whole week with their cousins. And there's now 10 in our crew. And my parents are amazingly blessed to have my kids as their grandkids. I mean, it's a noisy and fun and noisy and noisy week. But it's a blessing for us to be able to spend this time together. But like many vacations, especially family vacations, at the end of it, you feel like you need another vacation. And I was thinking about this week, about both what makes it work but also maybe what makes it so exhausting. And I was thinking about the roles that we carry. At home, I'm a dad and a husband. But on a family vacation, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a brother-in-law and an uncle to seven amazing kids. And if you think about it, there's unique roles and responsibilities and nuance to each of these relationships. And I was thinking about, you know, there are things that I can say to my parents that I can't say to my wife. And there are things that I can say to my kids that I I can't say to my nieces and nephews. And there are especially things that I can say to my wife that I can't say to my (laughs) sister-in-laws. No wonder it's so exhausting, all these different roles and responsibilities. And our kids, they pick up on these changes. My wife... And I, we, we, we have a highly scheduled family. Anybody have a highly scheduled family? And our, our extended family, they're not much different. 
but for this whole vacation thing to work, to work together, for us to actually enjoy our time together, all with all the roles and the opinions and the personalities, we have to give up certain things. We have to give up certain things to make it work. Like I remember I was uh, at the beach one afternoon with my son, and, and he just looked at me and said, Dad, what's for dinner? I was like, I don't know. And he looked at me. He was like, Dad, it's 4 o'clock. How do you not know what's for dinner? And I was like, well, I, I don't. Why not? Well, Uncle Darren and Aunt Casey are cooking tonight, and that's what we do when we're on family vacation. We each take a night, kind of share the load. Well, what are they making? I'm like, I don't know, but whatever they're making, you should probably eat. <laughs> it's like, well, what time is dinner? Uh, whenever they're done cooking, like, well, what time? Probably between 5.30 and 7. I don't know. And, um, and it's an amazing lesson on focusing on what's important. It's for us to be a family together. Not the details, it's not gonna be perfect, but to cherish the moments that we have together. And as we were together, I was reminded once again that we as a people are designed to be together. That honestly, most things in life, most things in life are better when they're shared together. And I believe the same is reflected in our spiritual lives. That God created you to worship together. God created you to worship together. They met together daily and they sang and they learned and they shared and they served and ate in communion with God and each other. And as they did this, they lived lives of worship. Now that word worship, we throw it around a lot at church and worship is to hold in the highest honor, to hold in priority, to revere and then to act. Worship's not just a thing that we do on Sunday for 20 minutes. Worship is how we shape our entire lives and our actions around God. We see in this passage that they worship together daily, but their expressions of worship had everything to do with how they lived and how they shaped their lives around God and then others at the focus. They lived in a way that put God first in all things. And God has created us to shape our lives around him. Dr. John Mannon uh, wrote in one of his devotionals that worship is the most God-intended response in creation. We are the most human when we practice the spirit and forms of Godward worship and adoration. We are most human when we worship God. We are most human when we worship God. We were created as an expression of God's beauty, of his majesty, of his creativity, out of his wonder, out of an expression of his glory. And we were created to marvel in that, to be amazed, to be enriched in that. And here's the place I think that often we might get worship wrong as a church. Worship is an invitation, but worship is an invitation from God. God initiates. God invites us to worship. Worship is not our idea. It's God's. It's not our church. It's God's. It's not our service. It's God. This is not our room. It's God's. From the burning bush to the tabernacle, to the holy of holies, to God, to Jesus calling Peter upon the water, God invites us to himself. 
God invites us to where he dwells. The gathering of the church, it's God's idea. It's his plan. In our worship, God's not just a topic of conversation, but he's an active conversationalist. We, as we worship, we are entering in a divine dialogue with God. And when we gather, we gather and we worship. As we come, we desire an encounter with God. But we enter into this divine conversation. Our gathered worship is not just a monologue. It's not just us reciting things. It requires the active participation of all who are involved. It requires us. It requires all participants, all worshipers to take place in this dialogue. So when we sing, when we sing to the Lord, when we proclaim what he's done, God is listening and he's speaking. God is listening and God's speaking. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you were talking with them, but you could tell that they were preoccupied? That you could tell that they were actually thinking about something else and you could tell that they really didn't want to be talking to you. I mean, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel that no matter what you said, no matter what you did, you knew it was going to be unheard? That they were going to be unchanged because even though they were talking to you and kind of giving you the time of day, you could tell that they were actually thinking about something else. Whatever they just came from, whatever they were going to, and they were kind of withholding their full selves from you. That they were engaging in a, a kind of passive way. How many of you have been that person? I know I have. How many of you have been that person with God in a worship service, in our prayers, in our often preoccupied and busy lives? When we do that with God, it's called idolatry. When we do that with God, it's idolatry because we are putting something in the place of where God desires to be. God desires to listen. God desires to speak. But when we come preoccupied, when we engage in passive worship, we are putting something in the place of where God should be and desires to be. And when you find yourself in these moments, because they happen, instead of letting them become a barrier, instead of withholding your full self, lay those things at the feet of Jesus. Lay those things, lay those ideas, whatever that barrier is, lay it at the feet of Jesus for he cares for you. Lay your burdens, lay your preoccupation at the feet of Jesus. That's how you keep him first. That's how you keep him first. God put you first and foremost out of all his creation and God sent himself, Jesus. God put his first, God put his best himself to die in our place out of his love for us. And he desires your firsts. True worship requires our first and we were created to give God our first. And we are most human when we give God our first. 
We are most human when we shape our lives around giving God our full attention. You are most human when you shape your life around giving God your full attention. And if you feel like something's missing, if you feel like something's missing in your life or in your identity, maybe look no further because you were created to worship God. And this is the reason we sing. This is the reason we sing. We sing out of a spiritual and emotional awareness, an awareness of who God is and who we are, of what God's done and what we've done, of what he provides and desires and what we truly need. We can't think and research our way into worship. It's a heart and a spirit language. Now, Marissa and I, we've been married now for 16 years. And we've dated and been married now for the better part of two and a half decades. Like, seriously, the better part. And can you imagine if I wrote a love song? And it kind of went like this. Well, Marissa, I've been doing some research. And I've been gathering data, and I, I took some character references and some background checks. I compiled some spreadsheets And after checking my sources, I wrote a report. And out of which I have composed this love song. That song stinks. Like, I better not sing it. Like, I better, I'd be in trouble if I sing that song. Don't let your intellect lead your expressions of worship. Let your heart and spirit lead. Let your intellect follow. Let your intellect follow. If God had run the numbers, he might have seen that giving himself for our redemption is kind of like a really bad deal. But God so loved the world. Intellect is still important. Remember, like at the beginning of this passage, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then let this knowledge strengthen their spirit of worship. And we find in in verse 47, and we read that the spirit that they experienced together was joy. Now, for a super smart church like Browncroft, I think this is really important. Because you can't think your way in or out of love. You can't think your way through grief. You can't think your way into joy. You can't think your way into worship. You have to feel it. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Ephesians 5 says, sing and make music to the Lord from your heart. In your worship response, you need to lead with your heart, with your spirit. And as you come to the overwhelming awareness of who God is and what he's done for you, your response should be visceral. It should be emotive. It should be this, as you come to this awareness, it requires it. It requires your spirit to to emote in this dance of unrelenting joy and undeserved thanksgiving. Imagine what our lives would look like If this is how we built our lives, if this was our focus, imagine what the church would look like if this was our focus. It'd look a lot like Acts 2. We were created to worship together. I mean, honestly, really, if you didn't matter to my spiritual life, if my spiritual walk, life would be much simpler. 
I mean, really, if I could do this whole Jesus thing on myself, by myself, and if I could interpret God's word and create my own path, and if everyone just left me to my own thoughts and devices, I'd be good, right? I mean, often that's what we think. We think we crave independence. We think we crave individualism. And as we live in this way, we end up living in isolation. And there's this ever-present loneliness in our society and also sometimes in our churches. And it's so, so wrong. It's so messed up. Ready? You matter to me. And I matter to you. You matter to me. And I matter to you, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not. You matter to me and I matter to you. That's the church. That's how God designed it. That's the family. And yet we struggle and we fight and we've struggled throughout history. We see this picture of the church unified in Acts 2, but Luke is actually writing this some years later. And he is writing this about the same time that his colleague and friend Paul is writing to the early churches. And a consistent theme in Paul's writing is just a cry for the church to maintain any semblance of unity I mean, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, the entire letter to the church of Galatia, Paul himself is struggling for unity with Peter and also the church in Jerusalem. If unity didn't matter, Paul wouldn't be writing about it. Unity matters. Standing together with each other in worship Matters. Don't let the messiness of ourselves and each other stand in the way of worshiping with each other. Because when we do, we miss one of our primary callings to worship God together. But why do we mess up? Why do we mess up? Because unity is hard. And unity is, unity is hard because it requires others. And it requires us to lay down ourselves in favor of God, and then to others. But unity is beautiful. Now to illustrate this a little bit, we're going to do something together. I mean, you invite me onto the platform, and so this is what we're going to do. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a little bit. And so I want us just to sing together this note. Everybody. And we're on an ah. Ready? Ready? And ah. All right, not bad. Now sit up straight. Take a deep breath. All right, everybody on ah, one, two, three. All right, that is called unison. And that is when everybody is singing the same thing. And in that, there is power and there is force. And there, but we're not going to stop there. Okay, everybody over here, including the back, I want you to sing that note. Ready? Ah. All right, but this is what we're going to do. The center now. You're going a little different. Ready? All right, let's do it again. Ready? All right, put these two together. Ready? All right, not bad. Okay, I don't leave you out. Ready? This is what we're going to do. You guys, up here, uh, including the back. Ready? All right, let's put these three together. Everybody remember it? Ready? One, two, three. 
All right, now give me, give me your best ah. But I'm going to put a men on the end of it. Amen. Ready? One, two, three. All right, one more time. You got one more chance. And all God's people said, Oh, that's so good. Give yourselves a round of applause. Woo! Well, we're all singing different things, but it comes together. That's like a, a beautiful picture. That is called harmony. That is called harmony. And you were designed to worship God in harmony. Harmony isn't the same as unison. It's not the same as melody. In, in unison, there's force and there's power. But in harmony, there's beauty. In harmony, there's beauty. And God designed us for beauty. And this is where we often mess up. Because we like power. And God likes beauty. We say we want everybody to be unified. But often what we want is for everyone to be uniform. We create instruction manuals for everyone to be the same. And we get angry when we aren't. God created us for unity, not uniformity. Striving for unity costs us something. Striving for uniformity costs us nothing or everything, depending on who holds the power. In unity, it often costs you your pride. It costs us our preferences. It costs you your comfort. It costs you your culture. But what we gain is something so much greater. What we gain is a picture of the kingdom of God. Unity is when we're singing the same song of the gospel, but we each have different roles. Same song, different notes. And when we recognize and appreciate the other giftedness of each other, that's when we're moving in harmony. That when played together makes something so much more beautiful. That's heaven. All tribes, all tongues, all nations. Revelation, that's just harmony. That's just beauty. In Richard Foster's book, Streams of Living Water, he expresses how different Christian traditions and different people experience Jesus in their lives. But they experience it maybe a little bit differently. Same Jesus, same gospel message, but different experiences Different expressions of faith. They're all biblical in their approach. to sing, But they sing the same song of forgiveness and love. And together, we have a fuller beauty of the church than one single person or one single expression could ever contain. And that's why you can't sing in harmony on your, on your own. I can't sing on harmony on my own. For me to experience the fuller unity, the fuller body of Christ, the church, it requires you. And you require others. Others who have different gifts and different roles to come alongside of you and you to them to sing the same song, but with different notes. And together, God makes something beautiful. And you see this in the picture of Acts 2, meeting together daily, breaking bread. They were integral to the spiritual encouragement and to the spiritual growth of each other. So let me just say this again, as plain as I can. I need you to chase after Jesus. I need you to chase after Jesus. Yes, I can be a Christian on my own, personal decision, yes. But I know that I haven't got to where I am in my faith on my own. And I know I can't 
go to where God is calling me without the help of others. So I need you to chase after Jesus because the spiritual fervor of your community directly impacts your personal capacity. The spiritual fervor, the spiritual energy, the passion of your community directly impacts your own personal capacity. In the right community, you can do more than you could ever dream of by yourself. And in the right community, you can experience rest and the support that you need. When you, when you surround yourself, so think, who do you surround yourself with that gives you spiritual life? Who do you surround yourself with right now that gives you spiritual life, that supports you, that shares your burdens? Now, I'm married into a cycling family, not a biking family, not a Harley family, like a bicycling family. And I remember going over to Marissa's house when we were dating and her dad watching the Tour de France. The Tour de France is this massive month-long bicycle race that starts in the French Alps and eventually ends up in Paris. It's hundreds of skinny dudes going for a bike ride. Like, and in cycling, they have something called the Peloton. The Peloton. The Peloton is this massive huddle of athletes that stay close together. They do this because together they support each other. Together they become more aerodynamic, but together they minimize resistance. In the Peloton, you can take on 90% less resistance, 90% less drag than if you're going the same speed on your own. In the Peloton, it takes 10% and crazy less energy to go the same speed. I looked that up. It blew me away. And for a Peloton to function effectively, they rotate throughout the race. They rotate who is taking the headwind, who is next, who's resting in the middle, and who's holding up the back. Church, many of us wonder why we're so tired. It's because we're trying to live life all on our own. Struggling, trying to take every ounce of energy that we can taking on the full headwind every second of every day. We often think that we have to go after Jesus on our own or we have to get our stuff right before we come into community. And this focus on individualism has made us tired because it's not right. God made a peloton. It's called the church. Where we together could share each other's burdens Minimize wind resistance and be, be the worshiping church of Acts 2. Ah, but there's a second half here. There's a second half. The spiritual fervor of your community directly impacts your personal capacity. And, and your spiritual fervor impacts the capacity of your spiritual community. Your spiritual fervor, how you chase after Jesus, impacts the capacity of your spiritual community. You can't have community alone. I need you to chase after Jesus. You need me to chase after Jesus. 
Because when you chase after Jesus, it helps me chase after Jesus. And then we chase after Jesus together. And together, if everyone in this church chased after Jesus in this massive Christocentric peloton, all moving together in unity, we would be amazed at the work that God would do. But that requires us to be together. That requires us to be together. And God created us to worship him together. Now at the start, I showed you a picture of my kids and my nieces and nephews, and they're a part of my church. They're a part of my Peloton. And I need to pedal and teach them to pedal. I want right now to take some of the headwind for them so they can start holding their own, rotate in. My parents, my siblings, their kids in my Peloton. But there's another part as well. Here's another picture. This is the younger half of my small group. These are the kids of my small group. In this picture, there's like 12 sports teams, four dance troops, six school districts, and 14 tired and stretched parents who set aside time to be together. Now, right now, these kids... They don't get to come to our meetings, but what they do get to see is parents meeting together regularly, eating together, supporting each other, chasing after Jesus, loving each other and them. My spiritual fervor impacts the capacity of my spiritual community. How I chase after Jesus with their parents impacts them. And I want to help them start pedaling. They were created to worship with us. They were designed to worship in harmony and unity with us. And there will be a time where I need them to go to the front and pedal, take some of the resistance full steam. But right now, right now, they need their parents and their friends and their church to pedal, to move in worship and in unity to move with our hearts, to worship from our hearts and from our spirit. They need to see me fighting for them and with them. They need to know that their spiritual walk is not a solo journey. My kids need to know that their spiritual walk is not a solo journey. They need to know that they have a Peloton chasing after Jesus for them and with them, that they have a Peloton just like I did when I was in their shoes. But for them to know that, it requires us to be together. It requires us to be together, to gather together, to worship together often here in this room and in our homes, to meet together often, to support each other, to chase after Jesus together. So let us remember that we were created to worship God together. We were designed to worship in harmony, in unified beauty, and together, together as we gather, let's chase after Jesus. But the essential part for us to grow together, to worship together, to be the church of Acts 2, chasing after Jesus together, is for us to be together. So I want to challenge us to be together to commit as we start a new program year here in September to gather together and worship often, 
Daily they met together in the temple courts. Gather here in this room and throughout this campus often. And for us to gather also in our homes. To gather in our homes, to walk beside each other, to strengthen each other in faith. And if you've yet to experience this Peloton of faith, would you join a rooted group this fall? Join a rooted group. Join a small group. Experience this Peloton of faith. I challenge you to take this step of faith because we are better together. But for you to be better and for me to be better, we need to be together. Lastly, when we gather, let's gather in harmony and express our worship like we have just received the grandest invitation of love that anyone could possibly imagine. Because we have. We have. Now may the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, as we close this morning, I want to invite you back. Join us next week. Next week, as we close out this series, Pastor John Amaya will be closing out in Acts 2. And then the week after, Pastor Rob, September 11th, will be starting a new series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week, we had two different things this morning rooted. You've heard a lot about rooted. If you want to join our rooted group, join a small group. You can do that in a couple different ways. They start in September. You can scan the QR code in front of you, or you can go to browncroft.org connect. Sign up for a rooted group through that. Also, FM, we've talked about how we can bring kids and help them start pedaling. And if you want to bring a kid into your Peloton or kids in a small group, you can go to the same thing, browncroft.org slash connect. Would you think about and pray about being a small group leader for a group of kids this year? Um, and lastly, if you are new, uh, we would love to meet you. I'd love to meet you. There is a, a table right outside our welcome table. Um, people in blue shirts would love to help you get connected. I'll probably end up there in a couple minutes. We would love to help you get connected and take a next step in the life of the church. And lastly, if you are concerned about Andrew and what we had for dinner, <laughs> Uncle Darren and Aunt Casey made tacos. So we were all good. Have a great Sunday. <laughs>